161 years is a long time. 161 years ago was the year 1860. That is the year that Charles Dickens published Great Expectations. That's the year that Annie Oakley was born. That's the year that Abraham Lincoln was elected president of the United States. My guess is that 99% of the people in this room could not name a single other event that took place in the year 1860. In fact, I bet if you were to go to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the year 1860 and you were to scan through the top 100 events that took place on the globe in that year, I bet that most of the people in this room would not recognize 99% of those events. 161 years is a very long time. In Isaiah chapter 51, the prophet is writing to a group of people that would not be ready to hear it for 161 years. He is writing to the people of Judah who were taken into captivity in 586 BC. And they were exiles there until 539 BC. Now remember, we're before year zero, we're before Anno Domini, we're before the new era of counting, so all of the numbers go backwards. But here what we see is in 539 BC, Cyrus of Persia conquered the Babylonians and began the process of releasing the people of Judah to go back home. The prophecy that was uh, going to be given and that we are going to examine today in Isaiah chapter 51, it was written to the people of, I, of uh, 539 BC. It was written to them 161 years earlier. It was written to them, imploring them to return home. Leave, get up, and go out of Babylon, go back to Jerusalem. This was written to those faithful Israelites, the faithful people of God, who learned while in captivity to reject the idolatry of their parents, to reject the way of the world, and to follow after God. Now as we dive in, I would ask that you join me as we pray that God would help us to hear this word in Christ's name. Let's pray. Lord, just as we sang earlier, we do pray that you would speak to us through your word. We ask that this morning as we bow our hearts before you, as we come before your word and we open our ears to you, God, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. Lord, it is by faith that we will grow and it is by faith that we are able. So God, we pray that you would strengthen our faith this morning. Give us the ability to hear and apply. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Over the past several weeks, I hope that you've been seeing a pattern here in Isaiah. The way that God has given these prophecies is absolutely brilliant. You see, what he does is he has designed these prophecies to have a near fulfillment as well as a distant fulfillment. And the prophecy's near fulfillment almost always revolves around Judah's deliverance from Babylon. Sometimes it's speaking about them getting up and going. Sometimes it's talking about their freedom. Sometimes it's talking about Cyrus the Great. But it's often in reference to that exodus from Babylon. However, there is a parallel that we are supposed to see between the old covenant people of God and the new covenant people of God. The promises to the people of Judah were promises that were physical. They were tangible. They were promises that were national But the new covenant people of God, you and I, these prophecies are also fulfilled to us, but they are fulfilled in ways that are spiritual, eternal, and messianic. Now, I begin here because if you understand this reality, if you understand the way that these prophecies are fulfilled in that manner, it will significantly help you in understanding this chapter. Grasping this truth 
will not only get you a better comprehension of this particular prophecy, but if you grasp this hermeneutical principle, it goes a very long way to understanding why Jesus had to die on the cross to save sinners like you and me. Isaiah 51 is absolutely overflowing with many possible areas for our attention, but for the sake of time and clarity, we're just going to focus on three of those under the microscope today. So as you will see, we're not going to walk through them chronologically, and often we do that. We'll just go from the beginning of the chapter through the end. However, instead what we're going to do is we're going to trace three themes through this chapter, and we'll see each one in turn. Here are the themes that I want you to be able to walk away with this sermon understanding and applying. First, I want you to see the cup of wrath. Secondly, I want you to see a call to awaken. And finally, I want you to see a comforting assurance. Join me down all the way at verse 17. God provides here for us a metaphor to understand the punishment that Judah has been experiencing. God's judgment against them is going to be compared here to a cup of poisonous or bitter liquid. Verse 17, he says, Wake, wake yourselves. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. Now let me just say, it has become increasingly unpopular to speak about the wrath of God in modern Christianity. Sometimes people incorrectly bifurcate the character of God into an angry God who existed in the Old Testament and then a merciful, gentle, welcoming New Testament God who shows up when we get to the book of Matthew. Others attribute wrath only to the Father and then mercy to the Son, thereby dividing the Trinity. Others simply desire to soften or maybe domesticate the character of God so that he might be a little bit more palatable to the modern thinking person. Now, we must understand that Judah's punishment here was not merely a series of events governed by cause and effect. God was angry. God says, I have a cup filled with wrath. God was not simply reacting to the tides of global conquest as empires materialized and then faded. God was angry with Judah. Therefore, he punished them by sending the Babylonians to them who killed most of the people and then took the rest into captivity and slavery. In verse 17, God refers to this judgment as a cup filled with wrath. He says, you have drunk from my hand the cup of wrath. Now get the image. It is like that of one person holding the cup bearing it in his own hand and forcing another to drink it. God held this bitter drink to them, and he stood there as they had no choice but to accept this brutal punishment. And this cup was not shallow. Notice the vocabulary that Isaiah uses. He parallels this cup with a bowl. That's the word that you'll find probably in your own version of the text. This word for bowl is not like a bowl that you and I would eat cereal from, or at least I hope not. This is the word for a washing basin. So you could think more of like a sink. He says you're going to drink a sink worth of wrath. It is a deep bowl of wrath. And the Lord says they, they were required to drink it to its dregs. Now for those who are less educated like myself and do not know what dregs are, 
That's a reference to the tiny little droplets of water that are left over in the cup at the bottom. You know exactly what I'm talking about. It's like when you're really thirsty on one of those really hot days, and you have that cup of water, and it's empty, and it's sitting there on the table, and you know that there's a couple droplets left, so you turn it upside down, and you're literally tapping it to try to get the rest out. He says, that's what you're doing with the wrath that I have stored up for you. The Lord says to Judah, you have consumed this cup of wrath, and your nation has earned all of this judgment, so you got what you earned, and I had promised this from the beginning of the Mosaic Covenant, that if you rejected my ways, this is the cup that you would drink. This cup is not exclusive here to Isaiah. We see it, for example, in other places like Jeremiah and the book of Job, and even a couple times in the New Testament, which we will see. Speaking of Judah, he says in verse 18, There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Now at this point... Almost every living Jewish person that would have received these words in 539 BC, the ones who would have been reading these words, they were almost all born in captivity. You consider the lifespan of a person, most of these people had been there their entire lives. Each generation that arose had nothing to say to comfort themselves or their parents or their own children. They were surrounded by their oppressors and they could see no light of escape. There was no comfort. There was no consolation. Instead, there was only a constant reminder that the wrath of God and the rebuke of his name was resting on them every day because of their sin. But God does not leave them in this miserable estate. Verse 21. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. What are they drunk with? They are drunk with his wrath. Verse 22. Thus says the Lord, the Lord your God who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more, and I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over, and, you have, and who have made your back like the, uh, like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. This is actually wonderful news. The cup of national judgment and ethnic torment was going to be lifted from the people of Judah, and God said that he would instead lay that yoke of suffering, that yoke of oppression, on the people of Babylon who had tormented them. In effect, God was promising these people that there would come a day when the wrath of God that remained over their heads would clear away like a cloud, and they would never be required to taste it again. Now, I hope you see the parallel for them There was a national response. There was a national fulfillment. There was a literal, physical presence of these oppressors in their lives. This was manifested by the downfall of Babylon and the return of the people to Jerusalem. But there is also a distant fulfillment that was made manifest from this chapter by Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Now, knowing what was to come, we are told that Jesus was deeply troubled in his spirit the night that he was betrayed. And it says in Matthew chapter 26, verse 29, Jesus prays, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, 
but as you will. Now, the cup that Jesus was referencing is absolutely not identical to the cup that Judah consumed. The cup that Jesus is speaking about was the cup of fury that God has towards sin. It is the cup of righteous anger towards all the ways that we have devised to disobey and to dishonor him. And every last one of us have a cup like this with our name on it. And it is the eternal punishment that we deserve that has filled that cup. We all deserve to be under the eternal flame of God's fury forever in hell. And this cup makes an appearance again in Revelation 14.10. When speaking of those who reject Christ, we read, He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That is the eternity that you and I have earned. That is the cup that we have purchased to drink. But the good news of the gospel is that in the garden, Jesus took that cup and he said, if the Father wills for me to drink it, I will drink it to the dregs. Every last drop will be consumed. And over the course of the next several hours, he was arrested, he was tried, he was shamed, he was brutalized as he made his way to the cross where that cup of wrath would be poured out on him. You see, there was far more going on at the cross than just physical abuse. How many of you have seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ? A large percentage. If you have seen that movie, then you've seen a pretty accurate depiction of the physical suffering that Jesus experienced at the cross. You've seen the horrific and gory realities of crucifixion. But we're going to see much more so in a couple of weeks when we get to Isaiah 53, that at the cross there was something far more brutal taking place than the physical death that Jesus encountered. God was placing our judgment and our punishment, our eternal wrath on the Son of God so that he might pay the sin debt for his people. And Jesus paid it all. He drank it to the dregs. If you are in Christ, you will never know the wrath of God and you will never experience it because Jesus drank the cup to the dregs. The work that you had put in The sin that you had committed had earned you the wages of death and God's wrath. You and I deserved that eternal death, but by grace you have been saved through faith. And now you are made pure and you are made blameless in the sight of the Lord. Now you may be looking at this chapter and wondering, why in the world did we just start all the way down in verse 17? Why do we go all the way that far instead of just starting at the top? It's because I want you to know that this entire chapter... This is the underlying point, that all of the wrath that we have earned is paid for by another. The placement of this chapter is very significant, as we are seeing the suffering servant becoming the substitute servant for us. I want you to see that this entire chapter is about how this servant would himself take away that cup of suffering so that people who had previously been without hope, without comfort, without consolation might find freedom and cause for celebration in him. What I don't want to do is get into the habit of just saying, here's all of this good stuff, good information, good things to do, plus tack Jesus onto the end. No, this is the point. This is what you must understand in order to get the rest of this chapter right. Just like the people of Judah could return and rebuild the temple as a place of worship. Now we are set free to worship God without any barriers. The Israelites, they were in captivity to the Babylonians. 
We were in captivity, enslaved to our sin and to Satan. We are free in Jesus Christ. We can now live upright and godly lives. We can now choose to reject sin and obey our Savior. We start here, brothers and sisters, because our other two points would be nothing more than moralistic platitudes without the power of this gospel message pulsing through them. So with this substitutionary atonement, this drinking of the cup in mind, let's now consider our second theme that we see in this chapter, which is a call to awaken. What I want you to do, if you have your Bibles, I want you to go to the beginning of the chapter, and I want you to scan through this chapter with me as we see a few of the ways that Jesus, uh, the Lord speaks to them through Isaiah. I want to take you to every command given to the people. Here's what you will see. Verse 1, listen. Verse 1b, look. Verse 2, look. Verse 4, give attention to me. Verse 4b, give ear to me. Verse 6, lift up your eyes. Verse 7, listen to me. Verse 9, awake, awake. Verse 17, wake yourselves, wake yourselves, stand up. Verse 21, hear this. All of these commands, everyone in this chapter, are calls by God to set our focus on something. The implication here is that the people of Judah were not seeing, they were not hearing, they were not paying attention to God and his promises. They were distracted. They were distracted to the point that God is referring to them as being asleep. Now here's one of the interesting things about that metaphor, is that four times in this chapter they are commanded, wake up! But the thing is, if you're asleep, you don't know it. You're unaware so as a point of edification for those who are currently sleeping in the room at this time, just nudge them a little bit, wake them up briefly. The point of telling them that they need to wake up includes the subtle point that they are unaware of just what has happened to them. Guys, you are sleeping. You are sleeping. Wake up. The people of Judah had been lulled into a place of despondency. They had been lulled into a place of doubt and lulled into a place of delusionment as they languished there in Babylon, not certain of what to see in the future. Where will we go from here? But what is God calling them to wake up from? Well, there are at least two things that the text makes very clear. First, there is a fear of the appearance of foolishness resulting in mockery. Now, we see this in places like verse 7, where it says, Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. Look, to the world, you and I, we look like idiots. Let's face it. We look stupid to them, and we are not going to look intelligent in their eyes. We believe in absolute truth. That is not in vogue. We believe in divine creation. We believe that God breathed out the stars and spoke creation into being and formed the first man out of dust. We believe that God did miraculous things, things like parting the Red Sea and stopping the, star, the sun in the sky and sending fire from heaven. We believe in the virgin birth and the resurrection from the dead. We believe that God is three and God is one and the world sits by and they laugh. And they say, you're a fool. You're so idiotic and stupid. You are unintelligent. You are unscientific. One of the moments that I am most ashamed of in my entire life occurred when I lived in Louisville, Kentucky. 
I went to Trader Joe's. I didn't do that often, but I did at one point for my wife. Um, and I think it was right after Athanasius was born. And I went to Trader Joe's, and I had this whole cart full of stuff. And when you do that, you know that you have a long conversation with whoever is doing the checkout, especially at Trader Joe's. They tend to be talkative and very slow moving. And as I was checking out, the guy at the counter, he was, he was just talking on and on about this local politician who was running for office of some sort who believed and had expressed that he believed in creation and he denied evolution. And this guy was basically ranting about how only a fool would believe in such an antiquated and unscientific buffoonery. And to my great shame, at the end of all of that rant, all I said was, hmm, I didn't respond appropriately. I totally gave up in the face of this man because I was embarrassed to look like a fool to that guy, the checkout guy at Trader Joe's. I was afraid to look bad to a person that I would never see again for the rest of my life. I gave up the chance to humbly and graciously stand for truth in order to shield myself from a momentary awkward silence or a sideways glance from a person who has no significance at all in the scope of eternity. And what's worse, I gave up a shot at that moment to share the gospel because I wanted that man's opinion to think highly of me rather than me thinking highly of my Savior and that man's soul. Why? Because I was afraid of reproach and reviling. To the people of Judah who are experiencing this kind of fear and trepidation, God says to them, fear not the reproach of man. Fear not the reproach of man or be dismayed at their revilings. Why not? I say to you, why not? Should you be afraid of those people that you work with? Should you be overly concerned about what they think? No. Here's why. Verse 8. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. So what? So what if people think that we're fools? The last the people who mock you, guess what? They fade away. At worst, their scorn can last until you die. Do you know why archaeologists rarely ever find clothing from the ancient world? It's because everything that they made for clothes was created out of biodegradable things that were often consumed by things like worms and moths. And God says, guess what? All of their reviling, it's just like that. It's very temporary. It's momentary. It will fade. All that stuff you feel that's a temporary moment of your life, your existence, but God's salvation is eternal. God's salvation, his righteousness does not fade. It does not diminish. So don't be afraid. The second thing that we're supposed to wake up from here was a fear of physical harm. Now at this point, Jerusalem had been nothing more than a pile of rubble for generations, at least three generations, and traveling the more than 600 miles on stifling hot desert roads through enemy territory, only to arrive at a place that will continue to be surrounded by enemies, well, that's not really the ideal vacation spot for the whole family. It was a mon monumental undertaking to travel that distance and to go to that place. And understandably, the people, they were afraid. They had become comfortable now that Cyrus had come and set them free, I've got a house here. I've got a life here. My kids have school here. I can't really go. They were afraid. We see God respond to this fear in verses 12 through 14. He says, I, I am he who comforts you. You who are afraid of man who dies, 
of the Son of Man who is like grass. You have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And you continually fear all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit. Now there's a direct correlation here in our level of fear for man and our forgetfulness or ignorance of the power of God. The more you are aware that God is for you, no one can be against you. The more you can stand up against any enemy, any army, any person, anyone, you have nothing to fear because all they could do is take this life away. Do you know what's really crazy? It's very likely that the largest population of Christians in the world today is in China. Some people, some sociologists, estimate that nearly 20% of the population of that most populous nation in the world is Christian. That's a bizarre and astounding thing when you consider if that number is true, that would be more than all of the professing evangelicals in North America and in Europe combined. And it's not free to be a Christian there. In fact, there they have a social credit score system where it limits you where you can shop if you're a Christian. It limits the things you can purchase if you are a Christian. It limits your children's opportunity if you are a Christian. It limits what you can, who you can speak to if you are a Christian. They take everything from you if you are a Christian. I wasn't planning to share this, but I'm going to. Several years ago, you may remember, when I first moved here, it was 2008, there was an exhibit that they were promoting in Manhattan. It was called the Bodies Exhibit. I don't know if anyone would remember that. But it was basically where they would, have, they would have cadavers of real people in various states of having organs removed so the public could go in and observe them. Well, eventually that exhibit got into a little bit of trouble because they found out that those were the bodies of Christians who had been killed by the Chinese government. That's what it takes sometimes to be a Christian in that nation, yet they may have the largest population of Christians in the world. Why? Because if you know God is for you, no one can oppose you. By seeing their absolute powerlessness, or power of God, we see their absolute powerness, powerlessness. I love how Jim Elliott once said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So in the midst of their fear, in the midst of their doubt, God says, wake up. Wake up, people of Judah. And I say to you, wake up today. We're looking for comfort. We're looking for ease. We're looking for people to like us. We're looking for those smiles. We want to be thought highly of, and we don't want to face anything uncomfortable. But God says, you will experience uncomfortable things, but I myself will comfort you, my people. So we have seen this cup of affliction, and we've seen this call to awaken, so now we look to that comforting assurance that we see in Christ. Now, it's very important to acknowledge that this text is not to all people equally. It is explicitly directed to those people who actually believe the Lord and pursue him. See this, for example, in verse 1. He says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Now, here's something really interesting. There was a lot of people that were taken into captivity in Babylon, and there were a lot of people who did not come back. 
And those people who remained there were the ones who rejected the words of Isaiah, who rejected the words of the Lord, and they did not experience the promise of return to Jerusalem. We read a lot about that, for example, in the book of Ezra and a little bit here in the book of Nehemiah. But what I want you to see about that is there are some who went there and believed. This is a call to those people who had rejected everything that their forefathers had done in order to pursue God. God is not comforting those who will continue on in rebellion and rejection. He is not comforting those people who adopted the ways of Babylon. I want to say to you, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, there's no comfort here for you. God is not comforting those who are still running from him. You must first trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So the starting block for you is to see the cross, to see Jesus and believe Everything that I say moving forward will be of no value to you at all unless you first are born again and brought into the family of God by believing the good news of the gospel, that Jesus saves sinners by death at the cross. So for those who are saved, we are often in the same boat as these exiles in Babylon. We are living in a world that rejects us and disapproves of us, and we are constantly bombarded with the temptation to fear and to doubt. But notice what God does for the people of Judah. He calls his attention back to the promises. He says, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Now, what does that mean? He tells you in the next verse, verse two. He says, look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you, for he was but one when I called him that I might bless him and multiply him. The first way that God comforts his people that we see here in this chapter is by calling their attention to his covenant promises. In particular, in this case, he is reminding them of the covenant that he had made with Abraham. Abraham, I will make you a great nation. He's one guy. But he says, I will make you a great nation. And there were many times that in his life and the life of his children, that looked like it was in question, but God kept his promises. In effect, God is saying, look, I have not completed what I promised to do. There is much more to come, so don't be discouraged. Don't be afraid. And we now, as New Covenant believers, we have received the promises of a new, a better covenant through Jesus Christ. We have a promise that has been made between God the Father and God the Son that we who are saved will be safe and secure in his arms forever. John 10, 28 says it this way. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hands. So how does God comfort us? By reminding us of his covenant promises. And God continues to, covenant, uh, to comfort his people by pointing to the fact that he will not only keep his promises, but he will also be with them. Verse 4, give attention to me, my people, and Give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the people. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look to the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner, but... My salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. The people were probably expecting a law to go out in a similar fashion to how they'd seen that in the Old Covenant with Moses. They were looking for the dark clouds over Sinai. They were looking for stone tablets. But that's not what God was speaking of at all. 
Instead, the law came out through the teaching of Jesus himself. Consider the Sermon on the Mount, or the parables, or the statement that Jesus made all the time, similar to this one, like John 13, 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Since Moses, nobody has said, hey, I'm going to give you some new commandments here. But Jesus can do that because just like it says here in Isaiah, a law is going out from God himself. I'm giving you new, the word literally here is Torah. I'm giving you new Torah. I'm giving you something new. And Jesus says, here's the new commandment. Love each other. And there are many others that he speaks This is a part of the new covenant way of life for those who follow Christ. It's a way of justice. It's not merely a bunch of external laws like the law of Moses. Isaiah makes it clear who is going to give this new teaching. It's very important here that you begin to see that God does something interesting in this portion of Isaiah. Throughout the Old Testament, there's a term that is used often. It is the term, the arm of the Lord. It's been used often and most significantly in reference to God taking action on behalf of his people. We see it most often in reference to the Exodus. But now, the term arm of the Lord is going to take on new meaning, new significance, as it speaks of a person. He is not just speaking about the metaphorical power of God. He is speaking about an individual, a Messiah. This phrase is going to be used to reference the coming Jesus Christ. What I want you to see here is the primary way that God comforts his people is by pointing us to the Messiah. This is the arm of the Lord, Jesus himself. Look again now to verses 9 and following. What I want you to notice is that the target of this conversation God is having with the people of Judah, the target moves from them, and now he is going to speak specifically to the arm of the Lord. He says, awake, awake. Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? This is not a reference to Israel. This is not a reference to Moses. This is a reference to the Messiah. This is a reference to God himself. Now, I can see how one might read this and be confused. Because it looks like God is speaking to his own arm to do something. I think I've told this story before, and some of you will have heard it. But when I was high, in high school, I, I'm a super heavy sleeper. And, and sometimes I would wake up, and I would feel my arm on me. But it was so asleep, I couldn't tell what it was. And so one time I woke up, and my arm was on me. And I didn't know what it was or who it was. So I grabbed it, and I threw it off the bed, and it pulled my whole rest of my body off the bed with it. It sounds like God is speaking to his arm to do something, and that seems weird to us. But what we have to understand is this is an Old Testament way of us being able to sit in on an inter-Trinitarian conversation. God the Father communicating with God the Son, I am commissioning you, publicly commissioning you, to go, rise up, and do miraculous deeds, just like you did in the Exodus, where you brought down plagues, and you parted the Red Sea, and you fed the people. Well, guess what? Jesus parted the sea with his body in baptism. Jesus fed the people by multiplying food. More than that, he says, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. 
Jesus does come. He does these miraculous things, and he does so publicly in a way that all could see. The Son of God came and did remarkable miracles that were legitimate, and even the greatest skeptics and enemies of Christ had to admit and acknowledge these are real. They are the actual real deal here. For example, Nicodemus, the Pharisee, who doesn't trust in Christ, who does not yet believe in him, John chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Who knows? Well, he's a Pharisee. It's safe to assume he's talking about the rest of the Pharisees. We know you're a teacher come from God. Well, how do we know that? For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. But those works were not the primary focus of the arm of the Lord. Notice the next verse, verse 11. is, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow, and sighing shall flee away. God now refers, look how he refers to them. He calls them the ransomed of the Lord. What in the world does that mean? Well, we most often use the term ransom in, return to, in terms of a kidnapping. But ransom really just means that they were bought with a price. Somebody set a price and somebody else paid the price. The price of our redemption was the most valuable fee in the history of the universe. The cost of our salvation was the blood of Jesus Christ. We see, for example, in Acts 20, verse 28, it says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Why? To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And the result of this ransom is made clear. It is everlasting joy. So I say to you who have been ransomed by the blood of Christ, have joy. Come to him with singing as we move toward heaven together, where every sorrow and every sigh will ultimately flee from us forever. This past Friday is probably the hottest day of the year. I'm hopefully going to be the hottest day of the year. So we took the kids down to the pool, and um, I don't think I've ever seen it this way, but my son Mordecai, he's three, he's terrified of the water. So terrified that when I was sitting, sitting there, I said, Mordecai, come here. And he just started to run which you're not allowed to do at the pool. So all the lifeguards are whistling and saying, hey, walk, kid. Hey, kiddo, walk. And so I get out and I begin to slowly walk after him. And he ran all the way around the pool before I finally caught up to him and said, buddy, you have to come into the water with me. So I got down in the water with him and I'm carrying him. And he was squeezing me so hard that I literally at times could not breathe because he was terrified. Similarly, the Lord is saying to the people of Judah, look, we're going into some deep water. We're going to go into some deep water now, but I'm carrying you. The arm of the Lord is with you. Church, the arm of the Lord is stronger than you think it is. He is there. He is holding you. So with my son, he never trusted. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. He's going to eventually trust me. As we go, he's going to see my dad is good. My dad has loved me. I said over and over, Kai, can you trust your daddy? Yes. Can you do you know your daddy loves you? Yes. Will you let go? No. <laughs> Do you know that God loves you? Do you know that he's going to keep you safe? Do you trust him? Our Savior drank the cup of affliction so that we might be awakened to the reality that Jesus purchased our eternal life. What could be more comforting than that? Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we pray that as we go from this place, you would give us strength in our inner man, that we might honor you with our lives, that we might awaken. Lord, we are so distracted. I thank you for the words that Gideon shared earlier. Help us to be radically and emphatically committed to our souls. 
recognizing that that is more significant than all these other earthly things. Lord, I pray that we would not seek our own reputation above honoring Christ and living for him. And God, I pray that in all of these things, we would see Christ's love for us makes it so that we never have to fear again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.